Hi, everyone. Today we have a special guest, Bill Lennon. Uh, he's the creator of the Heart Program. Uh, Bill, do you, do you mind just giving like a brief background about yourself and like inter like introducing yourself to the sure. audience? Yeah, no problem. So um, I spent the last 25 years working on technology stuff in Silicon Valley. Um, I got in very early on web-based technologies, um, wrote a bunch of code for seven years and then got into product management. And I've been a product manager some way, shape or form ever since. The, the latest incarnation is a mental, preventative mental wellness startup taking the approach towards mental health that there are a set of skills that you can learn that will inoculate you against depression and anxiety, as well as a host of other problems that um, they're, very, they're very teachable, they're very learnable, they're very valuable, and they're recyclable across a wide variety of contexts. And before I was in Silicon Valley, um, I mostly grew up in Hawaii. My dad was in the military, moved around a lot as a kid, um, moved here because I had hooked on racing cars. And um, I have zero computer experience before I started coding in my 30s. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, I, I noticed that you and Aditya were like talking a lot about cars last time. I kind of yeah. tuned out of that because <laughs> I didn't really know anything about that. But uh, yeah, so I was actually browsing your LinkedIn um, and I noticed you were like the COO of Uplevel Works. And I understand that's like centered around communication and leadership skills. So um, we, it was, we closed it down. It was a physical space. Um, when, you know, startups pivot, right? That's kind of the nature of the beast. And when, we were first conceptualizing where we wanted to go, what we wanted to do. We were very much focused on live events. And what we learned, as startups tend to do, is that that didn't work. Um, people liked the idea, but we, we just couldn't get traction with the live space. And so we, we closed that down and pivoted to a fully digital platform instead. And we also started focusing on the high school market. Okay, that's great. Um, like, how did that like experience there like kind of push you into like the mental wellness like space? Cause I know after, after your time in like the tech industry, you moved to the education industry, mm -hmm. from my yeah. understanding. Yeah, yeah. So my partner, um, so I'm the co-founder, right? My partner is a clinician. And the kind of the way this started, um, she's an occupational therapist and she works in a mental health setting. Um, she works in a program at El Camino Hospital. And they, the program is, helps people who are at the most extreme bad end of the mental health spectrum. And they teach people a set of skills, which get them back in control of their lives and help them recover from depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and self-harm. And her big aha five years ago, maybe, was that 
number one, these skills worked really, really, really well for their, for their patients. But number two, the skills are working really well for her. And she was an adult raising teens of her own. And she thought she knew how the world operated, but she was learning all these new skills that helped her be more effective in the world. Uh, the, the way that we got together was that about three years ago, she interviewed me about how I've been able to get teams throughout my career to achieve things that people said were impossible. And as I was talking through kind of my approach and how, and how I do that, she said, oh, you're, you're using uh, DBT. And I said, I don't know what that is. And she said, it's dialectical behavior therapy. And I said, I really don't know what that is. And then we went down this road of trying to figure out how I'd built these skills up. And basically I had done a boatload of research in every direction possible to learn how to lead teams. And it turns out that a bunch of those skills that I had learned are recycling of skills from dialectical behavior therapy, which is the core of the heart program. Okay, I see. So yeah, that being said, so that, can you repeat that therapy thing again? I can't it's really. Dialectical yeah. behavior therapy. And dialectical is about being able to hold two competing ideas in your head at the same time. Uh, like, um, I'm afraid of heights, but I'm gonna jump out of this airplane anyway. Right? Oh, okay. So that was kind of the, like inspiration behind the heart modules creation? Yeah, so what we, what we saw was that I had a very pragmatic real world angle on these skills that Barbara had as a clinical and um, kind of academic perspective. And so now we were able to see, oh, here's how you take this skill set and bring it out to all these other places and be able to help people understand the value of it in contexts that aren't the clinical setting. And again, because we're thinking preventative, we want to teach people these skills well before they have a problem. Um, a couple of analogies that we use pretty regularly. Um, one is swimming, right? Do you want to learn how to swim when you've fallen off a boat and you're a quarter mile offshore and it's going to take them five minutes to turn around and come back and get you? Or do you want to learn how to swim in a swimming pool where falling off that boat's just kind of something you will laugh about in the future? right? The two very, very different outcomes in those two situations. And so we want to teach people things in advance. Um, you guys have all learned how to do math, right? And you can all read, right? Well, when you started learning math, when you were five or six, you didn't have a business need for it, right? But if you've got a job now, or you're planning on a job in the future, math is going to be critical, even if you're working retail, right? Because when someone says, put five shoe boxes over on the shelf, if you don't know how to count to five, you, you can't do that simple task, right? But it's the same thing with this is teaching skills, getting people to practice them, having them be prepared way in advance. And so it actually, you don't, you don't need to go into these emotional spikes anymore because you can solve problems much, much easier. Uh, so I had a, a quick question to get, I, I guess, got about your ethics and the ethics you guys have to follow uh, regarding like the hard modules, since I guess you're, um, I guess, teaching skills uh, regarding on how to like improve mental health. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, um, like what kind of ethical or like what kind of ethical concerns do you guys have do you have to follow and maybe like what kind of uh, regulations or legal issues do you have to like, I guess, uh, 
deal with? Good question. So um, the, the first, there, there's kind of a, a stack of things that we look at. One of them is the program that we're teaching has a mountain of research behind it. It's been around for 30 years, used clinically every age bracket you can imagine. Um, and so we're really comfortable that it works. On the other side, I know from the professional setting how well these skills work, both for myself and other people who don't know DBT, but who use the skills. Um, in terms of the stuff that we're teaching you guys, we're leveraging the existing textbooks for DBT and CBT to as, as informing coming in. Um, and then in terms of you know, data requirements, um, we've, we have to meet, I, I don't remember the name of it, but there's a set of data requirements because you guys are under 18. Um, and we're, we have to do it, it's a least common denominator, right? Even if, even if you're all over 18, the high school has a population that's under 18 that we have to, we have to adhere to. Um, and so there's a set of a survey about, you know, what do we do with the data and, and, and how do we use it? And what do we collect? Um, and so that's another piece of it that was super easy for us because we don't collect very much. Um, and uh, the, the third kind of piece of that is um, we aren't, uh, and this is on purpose, we aren't collecting random, like there's no place in the heart program where you can just type in random text mm -hmm. um, because that would require that we have somebody available 24 seven to read it. And because this is in a context of mental health, um, that's not a thing we could do in anything approaching scalability. Yeah. Other than that, you know, it's, it, it's you know, the, because these, these skills are simple, right? Um, I'm, let's see, what's a module, the module on, on healthy brain chemistry. Um, you know, simple things you can do to help your brain chemistry is go for a walk, um, get out in the sunshine, um, get a little bit of exercise, have social interactions and have good sleep, right? It's not challenging in any way, shape, or form to give that kind of advice. And by the way, it's really good for your brain chemistry. So, you know, that's, that's super easy. Um, what might help you is we, we have a framework that we use as a simple way to understand mental health, right? We think of it as a three-legged stool um, and, and they're pretty simple to understand from, and no, framework is perfect, but this definitely gets us past the 80-20 point. So the, the first leg of the stool is brain chemistry. Um, it, as long as your brain chemistry is in decent shape, other things become much easier. And, and we, we know that brain chemistry is important because there's all this research on brain chemistry. And if you went to see a psychiatrist, the pharmaceuticals that they would give you for depression or anxiety directly impact your brain chemistry. So that's a really good one leg of the stool. And it's easy for you to do activities that help your brain chemistry. They're not challenging, right? The second leg of the stool is skills. Um, everything in the world you could ever wanna do is skills-based. And, and this is something that most people don't think through because no one's ever really said it to them. Um, but 
you know, walking is a skill. If you've ever broken a leg and then had to relearn how to walk, it's a skill, right? And, and so you've got, and you've got to relearn how to balance and strength and coordination and everything. Um, learning how to interview well, have interviews become easy is actually a skill. Um, writing resumes so that they get good results is a skill. Networking is a skill. Um, writing codes a skill, right? Presenting to people in such a way that they pay attention and they want to know the next thing is a skill. Um, I have an uh, outstanding challenge to friends of mine to bring me something that's not a skill. And so far, I've, they haven't, other than um, your autonomic nervous system, like your heartbeats, right? That happens on its own. You don't have to worry about it. Um, and, and people get hung up when they have, they want to achieve something like you want to get a job, right? Except that nobody's paying attention to your resume. And, and the problem there is that you haven't learned the skill of writing an effective resume. And if you don't have that skill, then you're, you're not going to get a response, right? Um, and maybe you haven't learned the skills of the whole stack of how to get a job. The first one of which is probably networking. And if you're not willing to go down that road, then you're going to have challenges, right? If you know those skills, it's super easy to get a job. Um, the, uh, actually, uh, yeah. I have a question about that. So I, I, I know a lot of people face like, they'll face mental health troubles that are along the lines of rejection. Where, yep. do, where is it the point where you're like, you need to understand, or how do you make someone understand that it's, you're not succeeding in something because it could be because you haven't learned the skill all the way. Cause a lot, yeah. I think a lot of people find, especially when I hear like friends saying like, Oh, it just seems like something's against me. Like, like it, it's, it's not the plan. It's not supposed to work out for me. It's never going to work out for me. And um, sometimes it's just like, that could be true, but it ju could just be that you haven't like tried hard enough. So, yeah. So that's a really good question. Um, it, interpersonal communication is a skill, right? That, that's just the reality of it, right? We, we communicate, we're all using English language right now. If I suddenly started speaking in Greek, you guys wouldn't know what I was saying unless somebody here speaks Greek in the conversation. Um, and no, I don't actually speak Greek, so I, I can't use that as a, as a live example. But if, if you're trying to do something, you're getting rejected, then figuring out a, a few things. The first one is, how effective are the skills you're using to try to achieve your goal? And if you're, if, if the skills themselves aren't very effective because you haven't learned how to do it, then it's not gonna work, right? It's kind of like, do any of you guys write code? Okay, good. So if you wrote code that was syntactically incorrect, it wouldn't work. Right, and it, you could write a lot of syntactically incorrect code, and it still wouldn't work. Right, the volume that you wrote of bad code wouldn't wouldn't change the fact that it was bad code. Right, it's the same thing with communication. Um, the reason that we use analogies is because people understand that concept. Right, that's the reason I just did the coding one. Um, the other part is learning from your audience when they say no, why they said no. Because people will tell you frequently when they say no, why it is that whatever you're saying doesn't make sense for them. 
And and that's your opportunity to go, oh, I totally missed that part. Okay, great. Let me change my communication and come back with a new approach. Um, so that the communication can become effective. Well, yeah, um, I kind of wanted to go back to something you said a little earlier about like starting to like educate kids with these skills from mm -hmm. a younger yeah. age. Yeah, I know yeah. like because I know like Redwood doesn't really have anything or like like any elementary schools, middle schools don't really have anything in place to deal with like mental health issues and stuff like that. So you, you only kind of see that when you come to high school. So mm -hmm. how early do you think like like what age should we start like educating kids on like having the right mental health skills so they can deal with problems in the future? So um, babies, um, I started my kids on swimming lessons when they were five months old, which was the earliest I could get them to go in the pool at a place that would teach them how to swim. And uh, my kids are fish, like seriously, they're, they love being underwater. Um, and I knew that this was a skill that would help them in the long run in lots of places because I like being in the water. Um, now we have frameworks that I can talk with my kids about things in relationship to their, to their aquatic experience, right? And we talk about resilience and struggle and playing water polo is really hard. And remember that when you first started, you couldn't tread water and now it's automatic. And when you first started, you couldn't throw a ball and now it's automatic. And so I've used that as a methodology, as a methodology to teach them a bunch of stuff. Um, you, you know, it's just, it's in terms of the, of the skills that are the, the preventative side, um, and even the recovery side from, oh my God, I'm really bummed out because something bad happened. Um, you can start teaching and modeling that at a very, at a very early age and, and kids will pick it up. Um, I, I don't think, you know, I, it, it's, it's every age you can, you can start learning it and you can start learning it, you know, at whatever age that you're old also. Yeah. And it's, it's not so much about the reactive approach, which is how a lot of mental health stuff is today, is they wait until you're in a lot of trouble. It's kind of the lifeguard methodology. And then they try and, and help you. And partly it's because no one has really talked about preventative mental wellness before. Right. Yeah. Um, so you think it's like, I'll just finish what I said, and then you can go. Um, so you think it's very important for people to just prevent the problems in the first place, rather than letting it, like start becoming bad and then fixing it, because then you're in like a deeper hole. But uh, yeah, right. I think Sajiv had a question. So. Yeah. yeah, it's, there's, there's so many there's so many places that you don't even realize that things can go bad if you don't get the education up front, right? Um, if you waited to learn how to read, like if you decided for some reason your parents said, oh, you don't have to learn how to read until you get a job. 
I don't think that would work very well, right? Because at the point in time when you want to get a job, you wouldn't be able to read a job description, much less write a resume to send in. So, you, you know, it's very much a, now you've got to, you're at a point where all of a sudden now you have to learn all these skills. And I don't know how fast you can learn to read and write as an adult or even as, you know, an 18 year old. Um, but it's more than five minutes, right? So we learn early and that way when you're, now you decide I want to get a job, it's a no brainer. Yeah. Yeah, so on the preventive healthcare thing, um, so I know in the physical healthcare like sector, you can take like cancer screening checks and other like physical tests that will actually determine if you'll have some kind of illness in the future, right? So how would you like pre do preventive healthcare at a young age and like make sure it doesn't happen in the future? What's the, what's the kind of process you guys go through? Yeah, yeah. Um, so good question. Um, what school do you go to? We all go to Saratoga High. You all go to Saratoga. Okay, good. Yeah. So right now, the way the heart program is coming into you guys and the kind of the order of the events that we've used, uh, the starting point is self-awareness and emotional regulation. That's the ground floor level. Because if you can't take it, it's like, you know, when you're on an airplane, they say, get your own oxygen mask first. It's the same idea. It's hard for you to go beyond and do other things if you can't regulate yourself and you don't have self-awareness, right? Um, the next layer on top of that is interpersonal effectiveness. How do you communicate with your team? How do you collaborate well? How do you take feedback well? How do you express your boundaries? Talk to the hand, right? Um, how do you be a really good servant leader? And how do you think about what do I have to do to lubricate my team so they can be more effective? And how do I recognize friction in my team so that I know that, oh, wow, you know what? We're, we're not operating effectively because of this thing going on. Um, and again, if you don't have the foundation of self-awareness, you can't really do the team stuff very well. Because oftentimes with teams, if you're in a leadership role, the biggest problem is the leader not having enough self-awareness to be able to help the team move forward. Um, the next block of modules is all around responsible decision-making. And it's, we talk a lot about recognizing assumptions and then checking other kinds of data. Um, if you imagine a bell curve, we talk a lot about the outer ends of the bell curve, what's going on out there, right? What are the outliers doing? Um, recognizing what the standard narrative might be, but then what are the outliers doing and how are they either succeeding or failing, right? Um, in my career, um, Early on, I hired a guy who was a computer science PhD from Stanford. On paper, in an interview, he was amazing, but he couldn't write production code to save his life. And he lasted maybe six months. And, you know, when he walked in the door, we were all like, oh my God, this guy's a genius. And by six months later, we were like, oh my God, this guy is just a time suck and we can't, he wouldn't take coaching, right? The flip side to it is, other end of the spectrum, I'm one of the best coders I've ever met, I've ever known is a high school dropout. And so, you know, we've got these two, you know, like I'm always looking for what, what are the outliers, right? Cause that's where you get more interesting results. Um, and so that's, those are all drivers into responsible decision-making. The context for that is what are you gonna do when you get out of high school, right? 
um, are you going to go to college? Are you going to do a gap year? Um, are you going to join the military? Or, you know, I don't really, you know, we, we have got no, you can do whatever you want to. Um, you guys are going to live another hundred plus years easily. So you don't have to be in a rush. You can do whatever you want to, and it's totally fine. Um, figuring out how to make all that work, right? Um, I've got a, a, a sophomore uh, at Los Gatos, and right now he's like, I'm not sure what I want to major in, but I don't want to stop school. So I'm going to go to community college, build up a bunch of credits, and figure out where I want to transfer and what I want to do. Um, that's an awesome idea because, number one, he's not rushing into something that he's going to regret in two years, which, from my perspective, is awesome. Uh, he gets to kind of look around and think and do some, okay, where do I want to go? How do I want to go? Um, two, it's really good because his chances of getting into a school that he wants are better than when he does it out of high school, which is awesome win. Um, and three, we save a few bucks. So I'm like, okay, cool. I like, I like all those ideas. Um, but that's what you, the whole, that whole segment's all responsible decision-making. And again, you need the other stuff before you can do that. And then the last set is how to approach your career from the perspective of it's an investment by your employer. So what's the ROI of you working for somebody? How do you always be thinking about improving your own ROI, but also be thinking about how to give yourself maximum flexibility either inside an organization um, across an industry or across multiple industries. So how do you take your skills and say, wow, I'm working in this right now. I can take all these skills and I can move them over there and be very effective on day one. So that's the whole stack. Uh, I had like kind of like a situational question, I guess it could be workplace. It could be just a team. I've, I've had some experience with it when you're in like an idea phase and, and like multiple ideas come up, but you mm -hmm. know, it, it wouldn't be investment. It wouldn't be a good investment of time to, to like try all of them. Yeah. How do you say, like, if you're a leader, how do you say like, I know that this one is wrong basically, and we can't waste time. So we should do the other one. Um, Usually the team will have some idea of how long will it take us to build it? One, right? What's the technology stack look like? Talking software, right? Um, and the second thing is, well, let's go try and sell it first. Whether it's a feature or a product or whatever. Um, my default is that's an awesome idea. Who do we think would buy it or who would use it, right? And we find those people, wherever they happen to be, and we say, hey, we got this great idea. Here's the pitch. Would you like it? Would it help you? Right? Um, and sometimes you get interesting feedback. Um, and sometimes the pitch, even though the product is a good match, the pitch isn't a good pitch. And so then you have to be really carefully ask them about their nose. So make sure you understand the pro the problem space better, so you can say, "Oh, so what I'm what I'm hearing is you need something that will do, blah blah blah." And what's interesting is our product does that, but we hadn't thought about pitching it that way, right? And that's how you find out what the whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. There's a book called Lean Startup, 
that I highly recommend around this context. And the, the baseline idea for Lean Startup is sell it and then build it. Okay. Uh, kind of transitioning from like, I don't know you guys are talking like the business aspect of things, mm -hmm. but um, uh, like with social media buzzing nowadays and stuff like that, how important do you think it is for like a parent to be involved in their child's social media life to like keep them safe from, I don't know, cyberbullying or just like getting too caught up in it? Um, so the earlier question about when do you start is you start teaching kids really, really early before social media becomes a thing about owning boundaries and about how to relate to other people and about relationships in such a way that they're like, wow, that's not a good relationship over there. And to have enough, um, what's the word I want to use, um, enough um, self-respect and self-confidence to be able to say, okay, I'm going to walk away from that. Um, part of it is uh, to get to get kids to see the value of not being on the screen, right? And to understand that everything that drives you is brain chemistry. And right now, if you're like, you know, my kids like to game, right? Tons of kids like to game. I don't like to game. And the reason is because I've had real, real world experiences that drive way more brain chemistry than video games do. And so I'd much rather have real world experiences than video games. And so what I try to do with my kids is drag them into real world experiences so that they can get that, oh, wait a minute, this thing in the real world is way more fun than that virtual thing over there was, right? Um, when you drive race cars, video games become really boring. And so there's a, you know, when you actually go rock climbing, video games become really boring. Um, there's a lot of different versions of that. And so that provides a, uh, a balance against what's going on in social media. Uh, one question I wanted to ask, like, I think this is a little more common here in the Saratoga area where like, you know, there's a lot of stress around tests and all. And one thing like um, that I heard from a teacher, one of his kind of philosophies, right? Like since a lot of mental stress is around tests and failure in school, like going back to skills, like how do you communicate to someone that they didn't study well enough or something like that? Um, so the, the first question is just about how much time did you spend and how much time have you been spending over time, right? And for me, you know, I remember back, you know, when I was in high school, there were classes that I was really curious about. And I was had straight A's and it was super easy. There was like no stress whatsoever. All the tests were easy because it was an area that I was really, really fascinated by. French, on the other hand, I just didn't care, right? And my grades suffered because of that. Um, I think part of it is putting the learning in the context of how important is it to the student? Um, on the plus side, nobody today cares what my French grades were, right? Um, the important thing is that you come out of high school with skills that you can leverage in the future. And those skills are more about learning because 
the, the world is, you know, knowledge is changing really, really fast. Um, and so whatever it is that you're learning today about any, pretty much anything in a decade is gonna look like old news, right? Um, so having all that stuff memorized is actually gonna be a blocker in the future for you learning whatever comes up new. Uh, so if someone doesn't get good grades on the one hand, it's like, okay, yeah, clearly you didn't study enough and that class isn't exciting enough to really suck you in and have you be really like, oh my God, I really wanna do good at this. Uh, and, and that's just the reality of school. Not every class is gonna be exciting unless you as a student contextualize that class as something that you're really fascinated about. And can, you can see how you could use it in the future. So I know Rohan, Rohan talked about it a little bit about like how in Saratoga, there's a bunch of stress, like academic stress. Mm -hmm. um, but do you think it's gotten to a point where it's like almost unhealthy, where it's, like it's not even sort of like healthy competitiveness, competitiveness. It's just kind of just people like losing their minds, growing gray hairs before like, like when they're 17, 16. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that I'm it's just unnaturally like just unhealthy? Like, um, so there's, this isn't a single variable equation, right? Almost nothing in the world is. Um, so one of the variables is, one of the big variables is how much do you yourself look at the world and define yourself right now by your grades? Like if you go out and tell people, you know, my GPA is 4.2 before anything else, then you're defining yourself by that success metric and the stress is now 100% self-imposed because you're setting that as your own success metric. Um, if your parents are really adamant that you have to get good grades because you have to go to pick a school, any school, Carnegie Mellon, right? Um, you've got to live in their house, right? You've got to put up with that and your parents don't actually know what it takes to get into Carnegie Mellon because what it takes to get into Carnegie Mellon today is not what it took to get into there 30 years ago. Right. So back to curiosity and um, uh, what's the data actually look like away from the standard narrative. I'm interviewing somebody who got into Carnegie Mellon last year and finding out how they got in would be really, really, really helpful. So you can go back to your parents and go, hey, I just talked to these three freshmen. They're from around here, give or take 25 miles. And here's how they got into Carnegie. And it wasn't because they had amazing grades because nowadays everybody has amazing grades. Um, it's because they did this other stuff um, that was completely unrelated to what they were doing academically. And, and so being able to have that conversation is much more valuable. And, you know, figuring out in the grand scheme of the world, where and how do you want your grades to be driving you forward into a place that makes sense, right? Um, you know, it kind of goes back to what interests you, right? What makes you excited and happy? Um, and if you're gonna do something in the future, whatever it happens to be, 
is there a way to make every class that you've got right now something that'll help you be successful in the future? Yeah. So what do you what do you say to people who like kind of have troubles with finding like what they're interested in and like passionate about? Because I know some people are blessed with like knowing what exactly they want to do for like the next for their life. But some people are still clueless and don't really know. So how do you how do you suggest like helping them figure out their passions? Um, Try a lot of different things do a lot of different things, learn a lot of different skills. Um, there's this, uh, I can't remember. There's a quote from somebody and I'm totally not remembering how it goes, but basically it's that the only way to find your passion is to go and do a bunch of stuff and figure out what pulls you in. Um, I, I, I spent, when I got into car racing, I spent seven years as a mechanic. I never expected to be a mechanic. Like if you had told me in high school, I was going to be a mechanic, I would say, no, no way. Cause I wasn't into cars in high school. I didn't get into cars until I, until I started thinking about and playing with cars and thinking about racing. And then all of a sudden back to that, what pulls me in, I was like, Oh my God, how do race cars work? How's this stuff all happen? What's going on? You know, what, what are G forces? Um, what is the limit of traction on a tire? Why would you change your suspension and how does that work and all that stuff, right? Um, the skills that I learned mechanicking um, have helped me in other contexts since then. Um, if nothing else, to have conversations about other people's contexts, right? Um, so it's, it's, don't sweat it if you can't figure out what you're going to do at 18 or 19 or you know, like my younger son, not knowing what he wants to do um, and thinking, okay, I'm going to go to community college for a few years and play with that. And, you know, kind of use that as time to figure it out. That's perfect. Yeah. Um, I think the idea you need to rush into something is because parents are afraid because they're terrified that if you don't jump into it right now, that you'll lose some window of opportunity. Um, I get that there's a fear there, but that window of opportunity is not going to go away. Those schools will always be looking for students. There's only a narrow set of things where you absolutely have to have a degree from a school to, to become a professional. Um, anybody here uh, going to be a doctor? Can I get a show of hands? Doctors in the house? No. So you have to go to med school, right? If you're going to be a doctor, you got to go to med school. There's a lot of other career paths where that's not the case, right? Um, you could you could learn how to become a welder. That's a much faster path. You can do a lot of that at home on your own. You can learn carpentry on your own. Um, you can certainly learn how to rebuild car engines on your own. There's books and videos and everything else. Um, there's a whole lot of career paths you can get into that you can apprentice. And, you know, folks in those businesses make a lot of money. Um, and you can leverage those skills in the future. You know, because I was a mechanic, when I bought a house that was a fixer upper, it was easy for me to learn how to do plumbing and tile work and framing and how to rebuild the bathroom. Right. Uh, and so rather than paying somebody, because 
that would have been a really expensive job. Instead, I did it myself and had fun. Yeah. Um, so, you know, build up all those skills and experiment and try a bunch of stuff. Uh, I have a quick question, actually. Yeah. So say um, when you're like 30 or so, you feel like you've like you're set on something you like to do and you found like a stable job. Then you realize like, oh, like say like medical stuff, right? It's, is it too late to jump into a major like like you need to go to med school right how does how would that work how do you know what to do um people go to med school in their 30s um so, there are people that go to med school in their 40s so how do you evaluate um like whether the like risk to reward ratio is worth it for something so significant in your life um so the first thing is is and that's a great question right how do you how do you do that right um is i start with tiny experiments like if you think you want to become an md figure out what is the smallest set of experiments you can do to see what it's like to actually be an md and then decide if that's really where you want to go right do i really want to do that for a living and you know what's it like and so you can volunteer to work in hospitals and go and be there and uh, you get to see all the bad stuff, right? And sooner or later, you're gonna, you're gonna go, yeah, the bad stuff's worthwhile, or wow, I really did not think the bad stuff was this bad. I can't do this, right? Um, when I got out of high school, I thought I was gonna be a physical therapist. Like I was like, I'm gonna be a physical therapist and I'm going down that, 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 that line. Um, and I didn't know any physical therapists. And then a physical therapist came and, did a presentation on campus and was talking to us about stuff and stayed around for Q&A. And I learned that at that point in time, most PTs spent most of their time trying to, trying to slow down the deterioration of the elderly. And so it was just, you know, they were trying to slow down the downhill slide, right? Which isn't really what I had in mind. Um, I was thinking about helping people who were much, much younger, who wanted to recover from injuries. And there weren't that many PTs doing that at the time. And so I kind of did some checking and found out that what this guy was saying was true for the vast majority of PTs, which was not where I was thinking about going. And so I said, okay, I'm gonna yeah, put the brakes on that puppy. Um, what do I wanna learn? And so I went off and learned commercial diving because there were some courses in how to be a commercial diver. And I got to learn a ton about commercial diving and along the way realized that being um, a plumber and a carpenter and a welder and a mechanic <laughs> underwater um, wasn't my idea of a good time. And, uh, and those guys die ugly deaths, which also wasn't my idea of a good time. And so, then I learned about how to navigate boats around the world. And then I learned uh, how to work on cars. And then I learned how to be a first responder. And I spent some time doing that. So, you know, it's, it's where's your curiosity gonna take you? I, I think if you, if you realize you've got a lot of time, then you quit worrying about that stuff. Yeah, so similar to how you like switch like career paths as your as your life went on, right? Yeah. So 
I know this is true for a lot of kids, in, for example, Saratoga, where say someone wants to be a computer scientist and then they get like really far into it and they, they make a couple projects. They, they, they set themselves on going to get a degree in that subject, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's hard for them to back out when they find out, oh, maybe I don't want to do this, right? It's hard for them, especially in Saratoga when their parents are there. There's like extremely stressful culture. It's hard for them to back out and find another path and explore when it's time to apply for college or something like that. So how, what advice would you give to those people who might be torn between what they want to do and what, what's expected of them? So at a certain point in time, you have to be able to tell your parents, hey, I need to live my own life, right? Like, you know, when I was in high school, when I got out of high school, I certainly had to, you know, run into that. Um, and, you know, with my kids, I'm like, I don't care what you do, just be happy, right? Stay alive, give me grandkids someday, and that's that's my that's my bar, right? I really don't care beyond that. Um, and I get that that's not everybody's perspective. Totally get it. Um, again, it goes back to what's the data you can provide to your parents to make them comfortable, right? Um, when I started racing cars, my mom was absolutely convinced I was going to die in a flaming explosion because she didn't know anything about the safety gear in race cars, right? And I'm like, well, actually my car's got a roll cage and you could flip it on its roof and bounce it and I would be fine. And I've got to wear all this fireproof clothing to even get in the car to begin with because that's the regulations. And I've got this four point harness um, that will keep me intact faster than my car will go if I run into a brick wall without breaking any bones. So I'm pretty safe. I'm safer than I would be in a streetcar. Like, why are you getting in a streetcar, mom? That's crazy. Um, being able to give your folks the data makes it easier. Um, being able to deep dive into a thing you think you're curious about. Like when I started writing code, so my, my path into engineering, um, I started a small startup doing sales and then I was curious about code. And I started writing code a little bit, just kind of screwing around. Engineering guys were helping me understand stuff. Um, and they were really good with guard railing me. And three months later, I was writing production code because they had been very careful to have me just do this stuff. Um, and it was all about the sniper approach, not the shotgun approach. Um, and I wrote code for seven years. And then I decided I like product management better. And and, and transition to product management because I'd already been doing a lot of product management. And so part of it is do stuff in advance for free. So you can play, it's kind of like the question about if you decide you might decide you wanna become a doctor, right? Go and volunteer at the hospital. Um, if you're doing software engineering, go find a startup to go work for and do whatever they need. Um, and you know, be a volunteer to help, to help them move forward. Um, you know, you, you can do this anywhere, right? If you want to be a mechanic, find somebody who's building a project car and, and go, go help them clean parts, right? Um, there's so many ways to do this. And as I, I think if you go back to your folks and go, Hey, you know, mom, you keep telling me you don't want me, you know, you want me to go to school, but you know how much plumbers make? That guy's making half a million dollars a year. It takes you a while at Google to make a half million dollars a year, right? I could make it faster as a plumber than I can as a software engineer. I think I might go and try plumbing for a year, you know? Um, 
and, and, and away you go. You get to go do that. Um, I will tell you that my folks were not excited about some of my career choices. Um, and in the long run, it you know wasn't a big deal because it was my life, right? Um, my mom was still very happy when I had kids. So that, that kind of took care of the frustration of my career path. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, I think the, your outline of like things that you've done just very insightful. Uh, I think from what I, what I got from that was like, you have to try different stuff, actually go out and yeah. try different things so you can find passion or what you're interested in. Otherwise, I mean, it's not going to happen. I'm a volunteering. Yeah, volunteering you know, as well. Yeah, and that, that way you get the experience, right? And you get to see the bad downsides mm -hmm. and go, oh, wow, you know? Or, right. oh my God, this is awesome. I want, I want more, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But uh, kind of going back to like what Adithi asked, like he mentioned <clears throat> parents kind of putting a lot of pressure on their mm -hmm. kids' majors and degrees. Yep. Um, so um, how do you, th how much do you think like social media has kind of, or like for mental health at least, like whether it's uh, there being parental like pressure or academic pressure or being on your own for the first time and like being exposed to the real world, like mm -hmm. the, the mental problems that can come from that, like what would you say is the most like pressing mental health issue in like our community or anywhere you've seen? Oh boy. Um, there's, it's not just one thing, right? Um, So there's a few things that stand out that are repeated that I that over and over and over again. One of them is um, a willingness to be uncomfortable emotionally, right? Um, which is tied to having not to, it, it's tied to a lack of confidence. Um, people that are really confident will go put themselves in uncomfortable situations on purpose knowing that the win on the other side is worth it. Um, it's, do you, any of you guys compete in athletics at all? Yeah. Tennis, football, basketball, golf, water polo? Yeah, for basketball. Okay, so if you ever watch pros train for basketball games, or pros train, period, right? They're lifting weights, they're shooting thousands of shots, they're working their butts off, and it hurts. So they can go win a game, right? they are purposely putting themselves in a, in an uncomfortable place because they know that's what it takes to win. Right. And so you have to have that mindset of being, being willing to do that anywhere and everywhere. Uh, and nobody talks about the pattern match of expand of expanding from just basketball and being uncomfortable because you got to go lift weights or run or whatever, or shoot a thousand three pointers to studying math, right? The reason that the basketball struggle is easy is because you're like, oh yeah, I'm doing all this practice, but I know I got that game coming up and we wanna win, right? The math, you don't have that same context yet to say, oh, here's, here's why I want it. Um, so struggle is huge. Um, 
I think the other one is people don't know that the reason they're having a hard time is because they don't have skills. And so, and they think that magically other people don't struggle when everybody struggles, right? It's just, that's the nature of life. It's just that my struggle might be different from your struggle, right? I look at something and think, oh, this is really hard. And you look at it and go, oh, it's a cakewalk, right? I can't do calculus to save my life. How many of you guys are doing calculus right now or already did it? Right, see, okay. To me, you guys are gods because I have no clue how that works. Um, but this is all, everybody has different struggles, right? And we don't think often enough about, wait a minute, what's that person's struggle? Um, social media glamorizes all the high points. People aren't posting about, oh, I, I just got diagnosed with colon cancer. I got like two years to live. I'm rich, but I got 24 months, right? And I've got a six-year-old. That sucks, right? Um, so it's, it's kind of, you know, a lot of it's about just figuring out what are the, what are the different data points to really pay attention to? Um, be willing to be uncomfortable. Um, you know, for me, I paid my way through college. I got a job, I worked full-time and I went to school full-time and I didn't have much of a social life. 2020 hindsight, that was totally the right decision. Um, because I learned all this stuff on the job that other people that just did school didn't even know. They didn't know they didn't know when they got out of college. And so for me, I already had a head start, right? Cause I'd been, I spent a lot of time working I didn't spend time partying um, and socializing. And so, you know, I, I got, I got two educations for the, well, I got paid actually while I was getting one education. So that was awesome. Um, I think, you know, social media is just a data point, right? And, and once you realize the data point, it's a glamorized data point and it's designed to make you think that Kylie Jenner is amazing and you don't know the reality of what her life is like. Um, and, you know, she may be a horrible person. I agree that social media kind of only shows like the good part of things, but would you agree that social media has brought attention to different mental health issues in the past? Like before social media, like I'm, I'm sure these like, like mental health issues existed, but no one really yeah. knew about it. So I think that's one positive thing about social media. Um, it has, and I, I think that's a good thing. Um, on, you know, on the other hand, we're still struggling to get the idea of prevention out there in, in, into the world. Uh, and I will you know, freely admit, we, we don't have a lot of allies right now that are doing preventative work like this just because it's such a brand new concept. And so, you know, we talk to people and they're like, oh yeah, I've got a therapist. Well, what are you doing? To, it's kind of like saying you don't brush your teeth because you have a dentist, right? Like, okay, well, that, that's not the most healthy way to approach it, right? Um, and so, yeah, there's awareness, but there's still stigma because people don't understand the how and the why of, and they're, 
when they're taking on behavior that is, is negatively impacting them, there's nobody pointing out like, hey, wait a minute, you know, uh, too much screen time, right? Get out of the house, go play basketball. Go for a run in the woods, you know, get on your mountain bike at midnight and go for a ride, whatever it is, but um, get, get away from the screen. Cool. Yeah. So I know you have to leave at five because you had something. Yeah. So if anyone else has any questions, uh, does anyone else have any questions or? All right. Uh, yeah. So I guess we can end it here. Uh, okay. Bill, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. Yeah, it's been a pleasure you. having you. Um, um, if you guys have other questions, just shoot me an email. I'm bill at heartprogram.com. Yeah. Yeah. And my apologies for like switching the times up like <laughs> a billion times. I'm not the best at time management, but yeah. Um, um, you will learn how to have better time management when you get into college and then a career. Right. Yeah. Okay.